Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. In this lecture, held on October 12, 2017, at the National Gallery of Art, Noah Charney examines how much of the way we conceive of art today, from which artists are generally considered the greatest and the preference for the Florentine Renaissance over other periods and eras, to the very idea of collecting art and how it is arranged in museums, can be traced back to one man. Giorgio Vasari, a leading mid-16th century painter and architect working in Florence and Rome, secured his legacy when he penned the lives of the most eminent painters, sculptors, and architects. Often considered the first work of art history, the lives established not only the field of study, but also how the popular imagination understands art. Thank you so much for coming out today. Um, I'm perhaps the second best-known person from Slovenia in Washington. Um, I came a long way to visit you today and give you this talk, and I'm completely delighted to give my first talk at the National Gallery about this new book of mine, um, which I co-authored with Ingrid Rowland, who you may know from the New York Review of Books. She's a professor of art history who lives in Rome. Um, And this is um, a history of how people have thought about art from the ancient world to the present day, as told through the lens of this wonderful, um, too little known Renaissance architect and painter, Giorgio Vasari, who's also considered the godfather of art history. And particularly through the influence of his book, The Lives of the Most Eminent Painters, Sculptors, and Architects, which was printed in 1550 and 1568, he is largely responsible for most of the facts and ideas we hold about the history of art and the way museums are curated. And today I'd like to talk to you about two aspects of this story. One, I'm a bit of a pop professor. I'm not the sort of proper one that teaches full-time at universities. I pop up at various places and teach short courses. I write for a lot of more popular magazines. I write the academic stuff, but I don't think it's all that much fun to write about, so I tend to do that as little as possible. And I do some TV shows and this sort of stuff, and my, my goal is to reach out to people who wouldn't necessarily know about someone like Vasari, and also try to introduce the importance of what to some people is a rather esoteric text. But my specialization is actually in art crime, the history of art theft and forgery. And when I teach art history, I tend to teach iconography of 15th and 16th century Italian and Netherlandish art. And I try to teach it as a detective story and interpreting works of art that are allegorical or have a symbolic value to them requires a certain amount of a priori knowledge. We need to know hagiographic icons to know which saints are represented, for example. But it also requires a little bit of old-fashioned detective work. And it's a small step to look for real-life mysteries or crimes committed or detective stories involving art as a physical object which I did when I wrote about Jan van Eyck's The Ghent Altarpiece, which is the most frequently stolen artwork in history. And then a shift to looking for lost artworks, and that's the story that brackets this one today, which I'm going to talk about, the search for um, Leonardo's lost battle of Anghiari. And it's also the subject of my next book for Fiden, which comes out in 2018, which is an illustrated history of lost art, focusing on the works of art that are no longer extant, but many of which were more important when they were available than works that happened to survive through the centuries today. So I'm going to read a little bit to you, and then I'm also going to talk off the cuff as well, because I'd like to present um, this mystery that seems to absolutely fascinate people, this real-life Da Vinci Code, if I may. That's a sort of naughty word to to mention that book, I'm sure, in these sort of circles. But um, I, I read it really quickly. I thought it was great fun. It drove me nuts, all the errors in it, but I still thought it was great fun. And um, hats off, I'd love to have sales in the same realm as Mr. Brown. Um, I'm also a little like a giddy child. I just learned that this book was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. I just learned that the other day, so I'm all excited. Thank you. There ain't no way I'm going to get it, but it's nice to be nominated all the same. As you step out of the blinding Florentine sunlight, and into the terracotta-scented Palazzo Vecchio, it will take a moment for your eyes to adjust. But when they do, and the Sala de Cinquecento leaps into clarity, you may be surprised to find yourself surrounded by giants. 
The soaring walls of this vast meeting hall, and it's huge, it's 12,700 square feet, the size of three basketball courts. They're painted with larger-than-life-size frescoes of riding and ranting warriors. Four enormous battle scenes show the military triumphs of the Medici family, painted in 1563 by Giorgio Vasari. His soldiers bulge out of skin-tight armor as they assault a fortified city by lamplight. And here we can see the numerous panels which are painted on both sides of the Sala de Cinquecento. Now, the manner style of painting with its steroid-popping musculature and neon armor-clad warriors is not everyone's cup of tea. Even fellow mannerists mocked each other. The great sculptor Benvenuto Cellini got it just about right when he said that Baccio Bandinelli's Hercules statue looked like, quote, a sack full of melons. Based on a technique developed by the followers of Michelangelo in 16th century Florence, with its intentional contortions and refusal to adhere to the laws of physics and anatomy, mannerist paintings look like, well, piles of bodybuilders in Deglo spandex engaged in an overzealous game of twister. Yet the colossal frescoes that cover the walls of the Sala de Cinquecento are undoubtedly awe-inspiring, considered masterworks of 16th century painting. But they are intriguing for another reason. Buried beneath one of the four frescoed walls may lie a treasure that, in the imagination of the general public, is of far greater importance, one which, should it still exist, has not been seen for five centuries. Hiding behind Vasari's fresco could be a lost painting by Leonardo da Vinci one that tells the tale of a battle between the two greatest painters of Renaissance Italy, and hinges on a mystery sparked by another masterwork by Giorgio Vasari, his book entitled The Lives of the Most Excellent Painters, Sculptors, and Architects. Of the lost Leonardo, the known facts are these. In the 14th century, the Sala de Cinquecento was much smaller. It functioned as a reception room used by the Medici when hosting visiting dignitaries whom they wished to awe. In 1505, during a brief period, when the Medici family was expelled from Florence, Leonardo began what was to be a monumental wall painting, and its originally intended size was 54 by 21 feet. It was called the Battle of Anghiari, which commemorates the Florentine victory over Milan in the 14th century. A torqued melee of riders and swordsmen. The Medici also commissioned Michelangelo to paint a second battle scene on the opposite wall called the Battle of Cascina. Uh, Michelangelo made a preparatory sketch, but he never executed the fresco, as he felt Leonardo's side of the room had better light and that he was already at a disadvantage in this intentional duel of the two leading living artists. Leonardo began his side, but never finished. His partial Battle of Anghiari is known by a number of copies after an engraving, and here we see two of them. This one is by Rubens in 1604, copied not after the original, but after the engraving. There's no indication in Leonardo's own life that he ever made a complete cartoon or preparatory drawing for Battle of Anghiari, only the design for one section, which is referred to as the battle for the standard, or a fight over a flag, which is what we see here. Clearly, these copies were made from the cartoon or the engraving only, not from the fresco. And it seems that Leonardo only ever painted one small portion of the wall, but the beauty and dynamism of his embattled warriors made the unfinished work of art a point of pilgrimage for artists who traveled to Florence. That Leonardo gave up on what seemed like a promising project was actually indicative of his particular brand of genius. The notoriously impatient artist rarely completed anything. He actually wrote that one of his regrets was the fact that he never once finished a single painting. That was a bit of an exaggeration, but not much. I always think if he lived in this era and he had access to Ritlin, he would have had a much larger um, catalogue raisonné. According to Leonardo's own notes, there was this portentous disaster that struck when he had just started painting this battle scene. In his diary, dated the 6th of June, 1505, we read, just as I lowered the brush, the weather changed for the worse, and the bell started to toll. The cartoon was torn, water poured down, and it rained very heavily until nightfall, and the day was as night. 
In addition to the melodramatic weather, it was probably Leonardo's habit of rarely finishing anything that led to the desertion of this commission. He was also called away to do work that he found a bit more exciting, and this happened throughout his life, which is why we only have 22 extant paintings by Leonardo. There are eight more that are mentioned in archival documents or primary sources, but have never been found. And that, incidentally, is the subject of this next illustrated book with Fiden that comes out next year, these gaps in our knowledge of extant paintings. So it would focus, for example, on these eight missing Leonardos. But this one, if it were found, would be the 23rd. What we know of Leonardo's life and stories, we have learned largely from Vasari. In 1550, half a century after Leonardo halted production of Battle of Anghiari, Giorgio Vasari published the first edition of what is referred to as Lives of the Artists, or just Lives for shorthand, a group biography of the leading Renaissance artists, many of whom he knew personally. Now, whether or not you've studied art history, you may have heard some of Vasari's stories. Part historical urban legend, part morality tale, his great collective biography spun visual aphorisms that endure to this day. Brunelleschi won the commission to construct the dome of the Florence's cathedral by balancing an egg on a slab of marble. Andrea de Verrocchio assigned his teenage pupil, a young kid named Leonardo, to paint a single figure in his baptism of Christ, but this one figure was so much better than what Verrocchio had done that Verrocchio decided to give up on painting and stick to sculpture. The mysterious painter Giorgione decided to die for love rather than live without his sweetheart, and he snuggled her in bed while she died of plague, knowing that he would catch it and die shortly afterwards. And then there's a dirty joke that was made at the expense of Pietro Aretino's sister, Pietro Aretino is a famous wit, a famous playwright. Um, he was sort of the Oscar Wilde of 16th century Italy. Um, and this dirty joke was so funny that he died laughing. He had a stroke induced by laughing at a dirty joke made about his sister. Um, he, this guy knew how to party. There's a lot of these people I would love to go for a beer with, um, and he is one of them. We learn these stories and many more through Vasari's lives. Spanning three centuries in the length of Italy, with side trips across Europe, Vasari's biographies range widely in their length and depth. But their progression outlines the trajectory of Renaissance art and architecture from the crude energy of the early 14th century to the refined professionalism of the late 16th. Each artist's life presents a small-scale history of personal development within the larger scheme of general artistic progress, and wherever he can, Vasari presides examples of each artist's work as evidence to confirm his story, arranged in chronological order. None of these elements should be taken for granted. The idea of a new entity called art was one of the great collective inventions of the working people commemorated in these biographies, along with the idea that they themselves, as creators of art, had become something more than mere craftsmen. They became thinkers as well as makers. The idea of a steady, positive progress also identifies Vasari clearly as a man of his own era. Ancient writers complained that the world had declined after a lost golden age, but Lives ends with the golden age of art ushered in by Michelangelo, who Vasari frames as the greatest artist who could ever possibly live. And I guess you could still argue that, but there's a bit of a, prop a propagandistic aspect to Vasari's writing. It was also in his own favor because he was friendly with Michelangelo. He was essentially a protege of Michelangelo's, taking on the mantle of mannerism that was inspired by Michelangelo's art. And he also founded the Florentine Academia del Disegno, which was an art school, really upon which all future art schools would be based. And he was teaching the techniques of Michelangelo. Vasari had good reason for his confidence. By the time he put the finishing touches on his second edition in 1568, Italian artists dominated a profession that had expanded in its range of influence across continents. And by putting works of his subjects into a chronological order, Vasari stressed their capacity for personal and professional development through experimentation with new techniques and new styles. Essentially, his argument was art got better and better starting with Cimabue and Giotto and Duccio, and ending up with the apotheosis of Michelangelo. The idea being it's going to be all downhill after this, but I'm the best of the, the downhill slope. Each life begins by identifying the artist's region and family. And this is important also to the way that we consider history and biography, whether or not you're dealing with art. 
his approach to how we look at the body of work of a historical individual is largely the way we look at it today when we examine biographies. The idea that talent could emerge anywhere and at any level of society, from a humble Tuscan shepherd boy like Giotto to the mellifluously named Milanese noblewoman Sofonisba Anguissola, one of the great names in the history of art. But talent could only thrive through rigorous training and tireless application. This is Giorgio Vasari, the working man speaking, but also Giorgio Vasari, the Tuscan, inspired by his native region's traditional work ethic and its treasury of wise sayings for every occasion. The most remarkable aspect of these lives is also the aspect that makes them frankly hardest to read. So Vasari's lives is still standard reading for anyone who studies art history 101. And there's about half a million students in the US per year who are assigned Vasari's lives or parts of them. And whether or not you're studying art, if you're studying Italian Renaissance culture, it's also a go-to source. Um, but it's got some parts that, aside from scholars, can get a little tedious. The listing of artworks, who created this and when. And so, in among the lists, the author adds comments that give the lives their spice. And he based the idea of this group biography on some classical group biographies, like Suetonius's The Twelve Caesars, or Petrarch's Lives. And the best part of those, of course, was who's sleeping with who. He leaves out that part, because this is a Christian era, of course. But lots of juicy gossip and funny, almost Monty Python-like stories, several of which we'll mention this morning. And that's what we tend to remember. The idea that history is not a series of bullet points and dates of kings and battles, but this element of social history that only took off universally in the first half of the 20th century, he really started that by zooming in, not just looking at the great men with capital letters, but also looking at the lives of everyday people and telling anecdotes, funny, memorable stories that stay with you far longer than the list of artworks and dates. Some of the more important lives also serve an additional purpose or illustrate an additional point. Giotto is the great pioneer of art's rebirth. Leonardo da Vinci had trouble finishing what he started, a common problem for artists and everyone else, of course. But his example shows that talent is not enough to build a career. Persistence counts, too. Piero di Cosimo plays the role of the eccentric artist, surviving only on hard-boiled eggs. And these are the kind of things that I don't know about other professors in the room. My students remember that Paolo Uccello hated cheese and loved birds, and that Piero de Cosimo ate only hard-boiled eggs, um, when they don't necessarily remember the, the perhaps more important aspects. But anecdotal history is the most vivid. And the weird, surreal, bizarre touchstones tend to be what we remember best, and Vasari was aware of that. The life of Raphael provides an opportunity for Vasari to show his prowess at an ancient literary form, ekphrasis, describing a picture in words. Michelangelo embodies both a perfect artist and a perfect human being, never mind that in real life he was quite grumpy and stingy. And though Vasari has him as the protagonist, he also mentions some of the peculiarities, which is another thing students tend to remember. He had boots made out of dog skin, which was probably not as morally objectionable back then as it is today. But apparently, he wore them while he was asleep during the day, so much so that they got sort of adhered to his feet, and he couldn't take them off, which sounds thoroughly unappetizing, but there you go. These are among the funny, poignant, and memorable stories told in Vasari's lives. And it's no wonder that for five centuries, they provided the standard primary source text for almost all of the world's art history courses, from basic introduction to postgraduate level. He's been called the father of art history, and he's credited with being the first author to consider artistic movements, the chain of influence from master to pupil, the link between an artist's personal biography, beliefs, and his artistic creation. And this is where it gets important, not just within the context of art history. There's a lot of firsts, and I'm going to be listing a lot of firsts, but it's important to understand that they really did begin with this one man. Not that he invented them necessarily, but his books were so popular and so universally read from the 16th century on forward to this day, translated into any language you can imagine, that they were the vehicle to popularize these aspects of what we consider absolutely standard every day, the way museums are organized, the way we study art history based on periods and regions, and also the way we learn about 
um, the decisions that a historical figure made based on their personal biography. That, that was new and different. His methodology effectively established the way we study art history today and also cemented the primacy of Florentine Renaissance art in the popular idea of what constitutes the crowning achievement of art history. If you have students who are new to art history, they definitely have heard of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Here's a pop quiz question. You're all going to get this right. There's four Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Raise your hand if you have no idea what I'm talking about, and I'm going to date myself a little bit. Okay. This, is, this was a comic book and a cartoon series, and the Ninja Turtles were named Raphael, Michelangelo, Leonardo, and Donatello. Which one of those four shouldn't be there? Donatello, thank you, who lived uh, a generation before the others. The real Renaissance rival, instead of Donatello, should have been Titian, but that maybe didn't sound as nice. But, so this is the first association we have. The fact that these are the go-to artists that stop anyone on the street and ask for a great Renaissance artist, these are probably the ones that they will know. That's because they were the focal point for Vasari. The book also influenced the way we think of history more broadly and the way museums are curated and objects displayed how biography is written and read, and how we look at the personal history of famous historical figures to understand why they behaved the way they did. Since its publication, Vasari's Lives has been fundamental to the way we see and study art. It's still read by every student of European art history. It's still a primary source that we use, although there are lots of mistakes in it, and that's important to understand. When you read it today, it's an exercise in flipping back and forth to the endnotes to see all the corrections that later scholars identified. And sometimes an over-focus on Vasari has led to problems. Um, one of my master's theses was on Bronzino's Allegory of Love and Lust at the National Gallery in London, which is my favorite painting. And that was a complete mystery to scholars until 1986, because everyone was focused on a single paragraph in Vasari's Lives, which describes the painting and the allegorical figures in it. And it was only in 1986 that a scholar named Robert Gaston said, wait a second, he's not even describing this painting. And it was set aside, and then all of a sudden he figured out what it was actually about, how to interpret it. But for about 400 years, people were latched onto Vasari as the only key to interpret this work of art. So he can sometimes lead us astray as well. While Vasari was the most prominent and successful artist in Italy during the mid to late 16th century, he was also something of a groupie. He idolized Michelangelo, and in addition to the anecdotes that populate his lives, Vasari was a thoroughly professional practicing artist, and it's important to understand that this is an artist writing about fellow artists. How did he get information about this? Well, he did what we would call investigative journalism today. Um, he wrote to relatives of these artists, many of the artists he knew himself, but he asked for any sort of memorabilia, any stories that people happen to remember. And of course, oral history is notoriously problematic, um, and people will remember, or if you ever play the game Telephone, you know what I'm talking about, where you whisper something to someone and it goes on a chain, and then by the end, the end product has very little to do with what began. But this was the best that he could come up with. It was admirable effort, but it does explain why um, there are a lot of things to correct in his text. It was also thanks to Vasari's physical intervention, resting reams of drawings from Michelangelo's hands as he stood before an open fire, feeding them in, trying to destroy evidence of how hard he had worked to come up with his wonderful finished products, his sculptures and paintings. He wanted to erase all of that hard work by destroying the preparatory drawings, and Vasari stopped him. And a few years back, a Michelangelo drawing sold for 13 million pounds at auction, and you imagine he's pouring 13 million pounds into the fire in reams. But the way we value drawings is also a legacy of Vasari. He was, in fact, the very first proactive collector of drawings as a valued art form in and of themselves. And prior to his time, drawings were considered more like blueprints for a building. You would keep the building, but you wouldn't necessarily keep the blueprints. Some of them survived. In fact, many did, but that was more by happenstance, whereas Vasari was proactively collecting them, buying them, and asking relatives of artists he admired if there were any drawings lying around that he could have. And there's a great lost treasure that actually inspired my next book called the Libro de Disegni, the Book of Drawings. And by some accounts, it was as many as 12 folio volumes, and it contained 
drawings by all of the great artists of the Renaissance that he had collected, and he would paste them into the middle of the page, and then he would do little homages of his own in the style of that artist in the margins around it. And it was essentially like a portable museum. And this is very early on, before we had museums in the traditional sense, the first use of the word museum was at Paolo Giovio's house on Lake Como in 1536, and he called it a museo, and this was a display of his collection largely of antiquities. And he was also someone who was friendly with Vasari. And between the Libro di Disegni and Paolo Giovio's museo, the origin of a museum that would organize artists into period, into history, uh, historical movements, and display works of art by them in a didactic manner, this has its origins there. Now, when the Medici hired him to redecorate the Sala del Cinquecento, they presented him with a major dilemma. Vasari's admiration for artists like Leonardo gave him strong reservations about destroying a work, even a work that was only partly finished. Would such a serious artist and collector willingly destroy Leonardo's Battle of Anghiari? It seems far more likely that he was entrusted with remodeling the Sala and painting with his own frescoes that he would have done anything he could to try to preserve Leonardo's. The Medici family had been in exile when Leonardo painted Battle of Anghiari, and they returned to Florence and to the Palazzo Vecchio in 1512 to find an unfinished painting on the wall, a painful reminder of that temporary exile. Now, had the Leonardo been completed, it might have been a different story. The Medici did admire his work and might indeed have allowed it to remain. But Leonardo had tried, bless you, an experimental undercoating for the fresco made with wax in the mixture. And he liked to experiment, unfortunately. He was certainly more scientist than artist in his own acknowledgement. And this experimentation meant that the colors began to run before they had a chance to dry. So, in fact, Vasari describes this painting, Battle of Anghiari, as in a state of ruin while the, um, Leonardo had still been alive. So very early on, it was in a very bad state. A dilapidated monument to their exile was not what the Medici wanted to advertise when they met foreign dignitaries in the Sala di Cinquecento. And so some 50 years after the family's return to power in 1563, Duco Cosimo de Medici, who was in fact as close a friend to Vasari as their positions in life allowed, commissioned him to repaint the Sala with battle scenes of the great Florentine, or rather Medici, victories. Vasari fulfilled his commission, and the Sala now shines with his frescoed battle scenes. But the question remains, what happened to Leonardo's Battle of Anghiari? The answer is in Vasari's own biography, and the story and content of his lives, and a clue to the art historical treasure hunt that Vasari himself painted onto the wall. There are only two words in this entire room painted onto the wall. And this little arrow shows where they are. And here we see cerca trova, which means seek and you will find. I'm going to introduce a colleague, Maurizio Serracini, of whom I'm a big fan, and I'll explain why. But actually, today, you're in for a treat because I have breaking news to share with you, and you'll be the first to learn about it. It also appears in the book. Um, but there's quite a bit of information about this that, according to Serracini, has never been in the media. Maurizio Serracini is this fellow here, an elegant Italian cultural heritage engineer, as he has been called. And he has become very famous for using advanced digital imaging technology borrowed from engineering to uncover hidden secrets in artworks. And he believes that this Cerca Trova is a clue. Vasari's fresco, he says, is covering up the lost Leonardo. Despite his success with other works by Leonardo, and he is famous, um, among other things, for finding a painted-over pagan temple in the background of Leonardo's Adoration of the Magi drawing, among other things. And he's examined over 2,500 famous works. He was drawn, though, into his own revolutionary field, which crosses engineering digital technology with art history, by this very mystery. In 1975, one of his colleagues noticed, for the first time that's recorded, this Cerca Trova that we saw over here. Um, it had been there, of course, the whole time, but it's located, it's actually up higher than this. It's right here. Um, it's located in such an inaccessible place, and it's so small that nobody had noticed until 1975 in a recorded manner. 
throughout the entire room, and one wall is 177 feet long. This is the only text. It was Maurizio Serracini who was summoned by the Italian Ministry of Culture to supervise the search for Leonardo's lost Battle of Anghiari. Serracini and many leading Leonardo scholars believe this to be a valid clue from Vasari, indicating that he somehow preserved Leonardo painting while still fulfilling his commission, and that Leonardo's fresco secco, or dry fresco, is hidden beneath a false wall on which Vasari painted his own frescoes. <clears throat> Now, there is a precedence for this. This sounds a little bit like, like a, an Agatha Christie mystery, but there is a precedent. Vasari did brick over another famous painting, Masaccio's Holy Trinity, when he was commissioned to renovate the Florentine church of Santa Maria Novella in a way that would have required the destruction of that fresco. And it was only rediscovered when the church was remodeled in 1860. So there's another precedent for him preserving a work of art that he admired by building a brick wall over it, plastering the brick wall so he could get on with the renovation um, and paint over it himself. Sedicini has since discovered a 1.5 inch hollow gap behind Vasari's frescoed wall here and the outer wall of the sala. So there is a, a double wall. This double wall, which Vasari must have built when he painted the frescoes is relatively unheard of aside from the Masaccio situation and has no architectural or structural rationale. Further, the gap is only behind one of the four frescoed walls, the one with the words Cecatrova on it. He subsequently located a paint sample hidden in the wall by using four millimeter wide endoscope to probe into one of six holes that were drilled through the outer wall and the black paint sample matched the chemical composition of paints used in other known Leonardo paintings, including Mona Lisa, which was painted at the same time as Battle of Anghiari. It's now clear that something is back there with paint on it, and it was buried by Vasari. It sounds like it might be an open and shut case, but it's not quite that straightforward. It is a hunt for real buried treasure, but as with all things in Italy, bureaucracy complicates. Um, I want to tell you just a few of the fun stories that appear in Vasari's lives. And some of them you may have heard, even if you haven't necessarily read Vasari yourself, because they're so prevalent, they've really entered the cultural oxygen. So there's a story of how Brunelleschi won the commission to build the dome of Florence's cathedral. And um, there was a very dramatic competition with all of the leading architects of the time, and it was a bit of a stalemate. But when all of the architects were gathered in one place, Brunelleschi stepped forward and gave them a challenge. He had a flat slab of marble and an egg, and he said, anyone who can balance this egg on the marble deserves the commission. And of course, everyone tried to balance, and it rolled off. And then they said the Renaissance equivalent of, oh yeah, let's see you do it. And so he took the egg, and he cracked the bottom of it, and it sat on the marble. And they all said, well, I could have done that. And he said, ah, but you didn't. Now, most of these stories have a moral component to them, but they're a means of indicating the personality of the person um, portrayed in that chapter. There's other funny stories, and this is another one that people tend to remember. It was a big problem how you build the scaffolding to put up the dome of the cathedral. And the cathedral was designed by Anolfo di Cambio with an opening for what was the world's biggest dome at the time, but he had no idea how to build it. And a whole forest had been reserved to fell to create wooden scaffolding that would fill completely the space underneath the dome, but it was hugely expensive. So they had a competition for how they would figure out how to get the workers up to dome level. And my favorite idea, which is politically incorrect, but it was to bring in loads of dirt, but to bury coins in the dirt. And then they're gonna climb up the dirt mountain, and they're gonna put up the dome, and they wanna get rid of the dirt, they round up all the bums they can find in Florence, and say, pull the dirt out and you can keep all the coins you can find. Needless to say, they didn't go with this option, but this is a sort of strategic thinking, and eventually Brunelleschi invented uh, movable scaffolding. I'm a big Monty Python fan, I like stories about naughty monkeys, 
And there are plenty of them in Vasari's lives. There's a story about Rosso Fiorentino, who had a pet monkey who used to steal fruit from the monastery next door. Um, he has another story about the artist you're least likely to have heard of because he is um, really only famous in Vasari's life of him, Bufalmaco. Anybody heard of Bufalmaco? Fair enough, you're in good company. Um, he is an artist who did work in Pisa, but most of his most famous works are lost. Um, and he is the sort of Dennis the Menace slash Ferris Bueller of the art history world. He was more interested in pranks to get out of doing work than actually doing work. And his is a morality tale that you can have all the talent in the world, but if you don't put hard work in, then it's not very useful. So what are some of the things he's known for? Um, there's a funny story about a real um, Bishop Guido of Arezzo. Arezzo was also where Vasari was from in Tuscany. And Bishop Guido had a pet monkey. And he commissioned Vasari to do religious paintings, uh, commissioned rather Bufalmaco to do religious paintings in a chapel in Arezzo. And when he did, the monkey snuck in, he was checking out Bufalmaco and he's interested in this whole painting operation. And he picked up the brush and he started painting over the Virgin Mary and, uh, and baby Jesus and whatnot. And um, they show up the next day and they think there must be some horrible vandal who's gonna be burned at the stake when they catch him. And so he had the guards, this bishop had the guards stationed inside the chapel to make sure they're gonna catch the vandal. And then they see the monkey rock up and start painting again and they burst out laughing. Um, despite the fact that the monkey had a wooden weight attached to him so he couldn't get too far, he'd picked up the weight and decided to go paint some more. Um, and so they, they've solved the mystery, but Vasari gives Bufalmaco the great punchline. And Bufalmaco apparently said to Bishop Guido, um, uh, Monsignor, there's one way that I plan to do the painting, but your monkey had other ideas about how to finish it, so I'm not sure if I'm gonna be able to, to, to finish this the way you wanted to. He also had funny pranks like, um, there was a story of his master in whose studio he worked, who insisted on everybody getting up very early while it was still dark out to start work, and he had none of this, he liked to sleep in, fair enough. And in order to trick the master into wanting to not wake up during the night, he got 30 beetles or cockroaches, depending on the translation, and he attached a tiny candle to the backs of them and lit the candle, and he let them in one at a time through a chink in the wall of his master's bedroom. And the master was just waking up, and he sees what looked like these demonic beetles with floating lights floating, and he was so scared, he decided to stay in bed, and he called off the night working. Another story that's very famous that suggests that Vasari might have been interested in abstract art, although he was at the time very much a traditionalist interested in naturalistic um, formal work. He has a story called Giotto's O. And part of it is an origin story of Giotto that when he was already working as an artist, a messenger from Pope Nicholas V um, arrived and said there's a competition to paint at the Vatican, and you should each make a preparatory drawing that I'm gonna bring to the Pope, and he's gonna choose the best one to be the commissioned uh, artist for this chapel, and this was a very big commission. And Giotto very quickly took a piece of paper and some red ink, and he held his arm fixed, so it worked like a compass, and freehand he drew supposedly a perfect circle on the sheet of paper, and that was it, and he handed it to the messenger, and the messenger thought he was making fun of him and there's no way he's gonna get this and that he was gonna get in big trouble for mocking the Pope. Um, and he brought this drawing along, along with all the other formal cartoons to the Pope and the Pope immediately recognized the genius of the abstraction, the confidence in presenting this and how difficult it is to make a freehand perfect circle. And it's also an inside joke. You can say that someone is tondo uh, come lo di giotto, which means basically as, as dumb or as thick as Giotto's O, and it was actually a joke that Giotto was playing on the messenger for not understanding the value of this abstract art that the Pope understood. These are some of the many stories, I don't wanna take up too much time with them, but these are what people tend to remember most. But the very fact that we remember the most, this is something I teach when I teach about writing, people remember the weird, the bizarre, the surreal, much more than the generic. 
And avoiding normalcy and anything generic is a real goal of good writing, trying to be as vivid as possible. And these funny, weird stories, you're going to go home for dinner tonight, you're going to remember the beetle with a candle on its back. You might not remember the dates that Vasari lived, but that's okay. The important thing is to understand how people remember. There's a long list of Vasari's ideas about what um, art should be, but also how to present it. And this is a bit like a laundry list, but that's, that's really on purpose that I'm showing it to you as such, because he is responsible for so many firsts. We already talked about how the value of drawings as a collectible begins with him. The idolization of individual artists over studios, he doesn't shy from the fact that artists worked in studios. But today, when we hear that someone like Jeff Koons or Damien Hirst doesn't actually touch the art that they're making, a lot of people think that that's ridiculous. They're very upset by this because we have this romantic era idea that an artist is a lone figure dressed all in black, preferably smoking and drinking absinthe in a, in a garret in Paris, and that that artist create all aspects of their work. And that's, of course, not traditional, and the studios of Jeff Koons and Damien Hirst are part of a long bodega tradition. But the idea that we focus and really idolize the master of the studio comes largely from Vasari, because before the Renaissance era, you wouldn't bother remembering the name of the person who made a work of art in the Middle Ages. The work of art was important, and it was just, um, oh, by the way, if you happen to know the name of the artist who created it. And artists were on a par with craftsmen. You had really good shoemakers and cabinet makers and painters, and there was no social distinction between them. But that is another one of the things that we can thank Vasari for. There were earlier artists like Jan van Eyck and like Raphael who were courtiers, and they were apparently very elegant and erudite, and van Eyck read Latin, and he also worked as a secret agent on behalf of Philip the Good, the Duke of Burgundy, and he was a very important figure at court, but that was quite rare. And Vasari was responsible for popularizing the idea that being a painter was a really elevated position. Painters, sculptors, and architects were above mere craftsmen. The general public has a focus on High Renaissance Florence as the best examples of artists, period, and that's largely due to the fact that Vasari promoted it. The way museums are displayed, including this one, owes much to Vasari, and specifically through the interpretation of Vasari's work by Dominique Vivant Denon, who was the first director of the Louvre Museum, who implemented in practice in a museum in the contemporary sense the lessons that Vasari taught. So some simple things, the idea that galleries are grouped by artistic movements or artists from the same region. The idea even that, and you can see this in all the museums you'd go to, that if you have a series of galleries, at the far end, the far wall, you have essentially a single vanishing point. You have a single work of art centered within the arches of all of the galleries along the corridor. That also comes from the way Vasari described how art can be displayed and the way Dunant at the Louvre first displayed it in practice based on his ideas. The idea of proactively collecting an artist's work is not reserved to Vasari, but he popularized it. So the first proactive collector of work by artists was probably Francois Premier, the King of France. He had a system that was very unusual. Most of the time, you would commission a specific artist to create a specific work for a specific location in a castle, in a church. Um, but Francois Premier tried to get any work by artists he admired. And that's a very different approach. He wrote to artists like Leonardo. Michelangelo, Raphael, essentially saying, I'll buy anything as long as you did it. He also tried to collect artists. He invited people like Cellini and Rosso Fiorentino and Leonardo to his court, and those three are among the artists who actually accepted the invitation and went to his court. So the idea that you love an artist's work and you like anything they did, and it's not a specific commission, was, was new. The preference for three-dimensional in the sense that it looks naturalistic, it has this um, Florentine high renaissance focus on perspective and foreshortening, that that was the ultimate goal of art, and that's what most people, are, if you stop them on the street and they're not necessarily art fans, they think something that gives the illusion of three dimensions on a two-dimensional surface is an example of a really great work of art, and something abstract, which may be harder to understand the appeal, um, is not. But the potential power of abstraction with Giotto's O, that does appear in Vasari. The idea of the Renaissance man, 
which is an idiomatic phrase these days for somebody who's very good at a variety of things, which is a surprise in this day and age. Through Vasari's own life and the lives of the great artists, these people were regularly sculptors, painters, um, involved sometimes in design, industrial design, architecture, um, poetry. They were often called in to do military engineering when the situation arose. Um, so the idea that they would be extremely high level at a variety of things that don't necessarily seem linked is another um, focal point of Azari's praise. The Paragone debate, the idea that there is a friendly competition between painting, sculpture, and poetry. And this was a popular dinner party conversation um, in the 16th century based on the alternative reading of a line from Horace, Ut Pictura Poesis. Um, the idea is a point of debate among scholarly acquaintances, which is the greatest art form? And then art forms were created to try to respond to that. So you have a painting that responds to the argument that sculpture is greatest because it can show something in three dimensions. Then you have a painting that shows a figure from a variety of different angles as a visual response to that. And this ekphrasis um, idea of a poem describing painting and also winning out as the better art form through the fact that it can describe the painting. Um, that's part of this Paragone debate. Also, the idea that good art should exhibit three things, and this is based on a Renaissance interpretation of Aristotle's on poetics. And Aristotle was talking about poetry, but the idea is that great art should have three characteristics. One, it should be good. And what do we mean by that? That it should exhibit artistic skill. If you do a photorealistic work and you show me a Keith Haring stick figure, they don't necessarily compare, but the intention of the artist is important. So if Keith Haring was trying to do a photorealistic painting and it came out as a stick figure, it's not good. But if his intention is to draw a stick figure, then, then it is. It should also be beautiful. This is one of the key components that was abandoned circa 1917 with Marcel Duchamp's fountain which marked a split in the ways in which art could be interpreted. There was the traditional academic Vasarian way that art should exhibit skill and be beautiful and also be interesting, which is the third component. And then there was also this conceptual split off that said art needs only be interesting. It doesn't have to be beautiful. It doesn't have to exhibit skill. Um, and the preservation of past artworks, the value of past artworks worth preserving for their beauty and also for what they teach us. So a little more about the mystery to conclude with. In August 2012, the project that was run by the Italian Ministry of Culture and the Ufficio di Pietri Dure, um, that Serracini had been called in to oversee, was put on hold due to protests from art historians. And this is one of the things that's interesting that I hadn't known about that Serracini explained to me. There was a petition with more than 300 signatures by very well-known art historians. Um, and I remember seeing it myself, it was going around, um, asking to put a stop to the potential destruction of the Vasari fresco in hopes of finding Leonardo. And this is a case study that you've probably come across because it was in just about every media organ that you can imagine. It was all over newspapers. There were documentary films about it. And it became a sort of cause celebre. But according to Serracini, not one of the 300 plus art historians ever contacted him to ask what the deal was. And when we looked at this a bit more deeply, we found some interesting things. So the objection was that there were six holes drilled in the Vasari, and that you would have to destroy the Vasari or a section of it in order to look for the Leonardo, um, and that this, this would be irrevocable. None of this is actually true. The media loves this story and likes to frame it as a black and white question. Is it worth destroying a Vasari, who's, to be honest, a B level in terms of the popular imagination, at least? In terms of cultural importance, I would have trouble finding someone more at the top. But in terms of people's appreciation for his art, he certainly has stepped down from the people that he admired most. But Serracini argues that there's never been any danger of destroying the Vasari. Several techniques exist to wholly remove a fresco from the wall to check what lies beneath. And it's a bit of a surprise that art historians didn't occur to them. And you can either replace it if there's nothing underneath, or transfer it elsewhere for display. And these techniques have been in play since 1966 when the flooding of the Arno River 
result in the endangerment of um, literally thousands of works of art and rare books in Florence. Um, the system is called the strappo technique, and it involves taking a linen cloth and adhering it with a special type of glue to the surface of a fresco. And it adheres to the surface, and you can literally peel the fresco's top layer off, and it adheres to the linen. Then you can reattach it to another surface and dissolve the glue without damaging the paint. And this technique has been regularly in use since the late 1960s. The six holes drilled to insert the four millimeter large endoscopes, while the media tended to think that Sedicini was there you know, frantically drilling, which wasn't the case. When he arrived, the Ministry of Culture had already drilled the six holes. Um, they also were not drilled in any of the paint that Vasari himself had applied. They carefully chose locations. They were drilled by conservators at the Ufficio de Pietri Dure, um, and they were in relatively uninteresting points that did not directly affect Vasari's own paint. Media reports have overlooked the fact also that in 1982, the Ministry of Culture actually did remove a section of Vasari's fresco on the opposite wall. So now I got confused, over here. They actually removed in 1982 a section, they removed due giornate di lavoro. Frescoes are usually divided into rectangles that represent a single day's work for the fresco painter. And frescoes traditionally are paints applied to wet plaster. So they would freshly plaster one of these giornate in order to not have too much wet plaster that's beyond what they could finish in a single day. And so they removed two of these squares. Sometimes you can quite clearly see those squares depending on the state of the fresco. Um, they removed two of them to check if the battle was underneath it. When they saw that it wasn't, they replaced it. And so according to Sericini, this has never been mentioned in the media. But if you go there, you can't tell at all that they were removed. So they could easily do the same thing on the other side. Here's an example. This is going to give you a little clue as to my punchline today. This is a not particularly exciting digital reconstruction of what the Sala di Cinquecento looked like in 1505 before Leonardo painted it. And this is what it looks like today. And the differences will give you maybe a clue as to my punchline. The situation of blocking the continued research for Leonardo is ironic. It's also very Italian, and there's a much bigger Italian political power struggle behind the scenes that I'm not going to bore you with. But the, the short end of it is the current, or the, the recent prime minister of Italy, Matteo Renzi, was the mayor of Florence when Sedicini was doing this project, and he was really all for it. And he seemed to understand the value of it also, not just art historically, I imagine, but also in terms of PR. And he's a very good PR man. And he was the one pushing it through. And when this petition came up, it, it was blocked. And he was prime minister already, so he basically didn't need the, um, the PR to get elected. It had already happened. And he has not forced it through, although he has the power to do so. And Sedicini believes he will at some point. Um, but at the moment, uh, it's still on hold. It's an ironic situation, though, because it's first and foremost because of Vasari's praise that the world idolizes Leonardo da Vinci and thinks a lost Leonardo's potential discovery is probably more exciting than the pre-existing Vasari works. Furthermore, Vasari's painted words, cerca trova, are what launched the treasure hunt to begin with. Sedicini used his written words and the text from his lives as a guide to figure out what Leonardo painted and when and possibly where. And it's through Vasari that Sedicini knew of the whole affair of the Sala di Cinquecento, of the fresco duel that was planned between Michelangelo and Leonardo, and of Leonardo's completion of a part of the painting there. This is another slightly cheesy video game style reconstruction of here's our buddy Leonardo. This is not a very accurate reconstruction. We know that Leonardo made a cartoon um, from the Italian cartone, meaning a large piece of paper that was a full-sized version of the battle for the standard. But we also have no record that he painted the rest of it or made preparatory drawings at all. Um, 
fun trivia, the technique to transfer a cartoon onto the wall in order to fresco it involves taking the drawing and using a pin to prick hundreds of holes along the lines, and then you blow soot through the holes holding the cartoon up to the wall, and the soot is like a connect the dots that transfers your drawing. Um, it never got this far, but again, you can probably see the proportions of the room are interesting for our purposes. Cherkatrova could indeed be a clue, but before we drill through more of Vasari's frescoes, we should take a look at the gigantic hall itself, remembering that what we see is not the same room that Leonardo saw. The room in Leonardo's time was seven meters lower, with fewer and smaller windows. It would have seemed cave-like by comparison to the lofty space Vasari created in the same location when he was commissioned to renovate the room. Maurizio Serracini and the Ministry of Culture team have not spoken to the press about the alteration of the room. If the room was raised by seven meters, and here you can see the difference, or 23 feet, and the Cerca Trova is located in the raised portion, then that was not physically part of the room in Leonardo's time. By definition, there could not be an original wall that high. The only option would be for Vasari to have cut Battle of Anghiari out of a section of the wall below and affixed it to the upper wall. Now, they are drilling in a couple of different locations. A couple of them are at the level that the room, that was present in the room during Leonardo's time. But much of the media has focused on the Cerca Trova. It's not directly behind the Cerca Trova that they're suspecting that the Leonardo lurks. It's lower. But there is a question, and um, we didn't have an answer yet when I inquired about it, whether the places that they drilled were actually present in the room during Leonardo's time or if they were too high. I've seen two holes that look right about at the correct level, right about here. Um, but I've been eyeballing it, and I haven't had a laser measurement to find out for certain. And they were suspiciously quiet when we asked about it, like we had pointed out something they maybe had not thought of. In the shining web of an art historical treasure hunt, no one seems to have considered that Cerca might refer to something other than the lost Leonardo. Vasari's frescoes stand high on the wall of the Salone del Cinquecento, emphasizing the room's soaring spaciousness. If a reminder was still necessary that Giorgio Vasari was a superb architect, and he's responsible most famously for the Uffizi in Florence. Um, also, he's responsible for painting the inside of the cupola of Brunelleschi's dome in Florence and remodeling this room. Um, those are his greatest touchstones in that city. That Vasari was a superb architect as well as a painter and a biographer, then this room serves as fine an example as any. Leonardo's Battle of Anghiari had to have been painted at a much lower level to fit the proportions of the Sala de Cinquecento as they were in his own day. Cercatrova, therefore, may not be an invitation to wipe away a Vasari fresco to find a Leonardo underneath, although as we know now, it could be removed completely and replaced if there's nothing underneath. Um, as a painter, our biographer was enough of a professional to value his own work more than that. If anything, Cercatrova should direct our attention lower down to the wall, where the painted surface is monochrome. There, if anywhere, is the place to look for a wall that might have held Battle of Anghiari. And we might think about what else we can seek and find in this immense room. There are stately proportions, for example, designed by Vasari, the abundant light directed by him, the endless inventiveness of Vasari's own paintings, which have been patiently standing on their own waiting for our attention. There is a certain vision of Florence, the city of art, a reputation definitively shaped by Vasari, not to mention the way we look at art, period. As we scan the Salone de Cinquecento for hidden treasure, we might remember that the best hidden treasures are, like Vasari himself, usually the ones standing right before our eyes. I think we might have time for a couple of questions, if you like. Otherwise, I'll be signing books outside. Does anyone have a question? Yes, sir. Uh -huh. Yes, it's a very good question. Um, it was translated. The, the date's going to escape me, but it was within the 16th century. It was already translated into several languages. 
Um, so it was very early on. Um, there are famous editions that were big bestsellers. There's, I know, an 1860 French edition. Um, but it was very early on that it was disseminated to other languages as well. It was also important, I didn't mention this, that he wrote in Italian and not in Latin. And the idea that this is um, for a wider readership than the limited Latinate scholarly readers of Florence and Rome. That's also interesting. So the idea of popularizing history, we also might point back to him. Um, but the fact that he uh, captured the imagination to such an extent, and largely it was purchased probably for the, the gossipy stories. The fact that he lists works of art, and when they were painted, is probably more of scholarly interest. But the dissemination of it, I think, would have been a surprise to him as well. But he knew that it was selling very well in the 1550 edition. The 1568 edition, which he updated, is much more expansive. It also includes his own autobiography. It also includes um, some things he didn't want to publish in the 1550 edition, so he wouldn't be sued for libel or more likely punched in the nose. He has, um, for instance, there's a villain in his story, Baccio Bandinelli who's the one who made a Hercules that looked like a sack full of melons. And he's set up as this almost satanic opposite to the angelic Michelangelo. And he saved that for the 1560 edition when Bandinelli was already deceased. So he knew it was really expansive. It's very long. It's often the complete works are sold in four volumes because it's so substantial. Um, but each life is digestible. Um, it, I, you, you could. I call it bathroom reading, which I think is probably more information than you want to know. But you can, you can digest one of those lives in a, in, a, in a quiet moment that you find, wherever that may be. <laughs> it's got another question, ma'am. Thank you for your talk. Thank you. Has any research been done about who might have read Vasari in manuscript before it was published? Y yes. In fact, he had a number of scholarly friends who were his proofreaders. And there's some question as to how much they might have added to the story, because it's very literary. It's very beautifully written, and it's very well orchestrated. It is almost a surprise if this came entirely from someone who was trained in erudite, but not in scholarly works, not in literary, not in theological um, arguments. And so he had several colleagues who were famous intellectuals, because he was riding around in these circles between Florence, Arezzo, and Rome. He was regularly visiting popes. Um, he was very close friends with Cosimo de' Medici. And so he knew all the right people to help out. But it's a bit of a mystery as to um, whether they were writing sections for him, or he was just sort of bouncing ideas off him. And if he forgot to dot an I or got the wrong gender on one of his Italian words, if they were just proofreading it. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned at the very beginning that there have been there were paintings done of the Leonardo lost painting, and that they were done from not etching uh, an engraving. Right? Yeah. Engravings. How were the engravings done? And especially since he never finished the painting. That's a very good question. Engravings, um, particularly in the 16th century, were often made in collaboration with the artist. Not that the artist would make it because engraving was its own art form, but it was a way to disseminate a great work of art much more broadly than the people who could go see it themselves. And the most famous example is Raphael as a painter was essentially a household name throughout much of Europe among people who would never have seen his works in person because of a series of engravings of his paintings done by a colleague, Marc Antonio Romondi. And they were literally direct copies, but done as engravings, which is its own special art form. It's very difficult to do. You have to drive a metal burin into wooden or metal plates, and it requires a lot of physical exertion. It's hard to get subtlety. But they're much less expensive, and because they're on paper, they could be purchased more broadly, but they could also be sent around Europe, and people would know Raphael through the engravings. So it's not a surprise that a great work of art like this one, and Leonardo was considered, along with Michelangelo, the greatest artist in Florence in 1505, that they would have commissioned an engraving to commemorate but also disseminate the work. Now, there may have been a component that they saw that it was already damaged. And according to Vasari's own record, it was ruinous before uh, Leonardo had passed away, so within, within a matter of years. So that may have been a motivating factor we don't know. But people would have seen the engraving who would never have been to Florence in person. Yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. 
That's a very good question. I think you're going to catch me here because I've lost track, but I think that that is um, a self-portrait. But I will, I will look it up for you when we get to the, um, I have to look in the back of my own book because you caught me out with it. Um, but he, he was, he was uh, interesting also. We learned some of his own stories based on the other great biographer of Renaissance Florence and Rome, Benvenuto Cellini. And the two of them admired each other, but they didn't get along very well. Cellini was sort of like an, an Ernest Hemingway macho type. Um, and he liked to get into fights. He liked to, to shoot things. Uh, he was very like manly and macho. Um, and he liked to make fun of his fellow artists. And from him, we know that Vasari um, suffered from probably psoriasis that was extremely bad. It was all over his body. And um, Cellini complained because there was one time they had to sleep in the same bed. And he was scratching so much that his fingernails were caked in blood and there was dead skin everywhere. Very unpleasant description, but helpful. And now you're going to go home tonight, you're going to remember about the Beatles and the itchy Vasari, even if you don't remember other details. So it is useful for our purposes. Yes, ma'am. That's a great question. We don't have anything more than fragments of his writing of lives, although hundreds of letters survive. And we quote lots of them in this book. Um, but we have some marginal corrections to the 1550 edition that he wrote. We have lots of his letters, but I don't know if anything more than fragments of the lives themselves survive written out. Um, this was in the early days of printing. and. It's interesting, he preserved drawings, but it might not have occurred to him to preserve his own writings. Who else? Yes, sir. What about the corridor? Aha, uh -huh, Vasari Corridor. That's a great question. So, Vasari's greatest work in terms of architecture was the Uffizi, which um, is now a museum, but was originally literally the, the offices of the Duchy of Tuscany. And um, in order to avoid having to walk through the streets um, when the Medici returned from exile. He not only redesigned the Palazzo Vecchio, um, but plans were in the works to build Palazzo Pitti, which would be the new residence across the Arno River. And Vasari was asked to connect the two. And it's a secret passage, but it's a secret everybody knows about now. So along the Ponte Vecchio, if you look up when you're facing to the north, there is a corridor. You can see the windows of it. And um, it's only, well, Back when I was living in Florence, you had to call to make a reservation. I think these days you can get private tours of it. But it's decorated by portraits, um, many by Vasari, of the artists he wrote about. And these are works that you wouldn't necessarily see. I remember having been surprised that I hadn't seen any of them in textbooks when I was still a student, when I visited it myself. So it's called the Vasari Corridor. It's secret-ish, because yeah, it's a little complicated. You have to call up someone to go and visit it. Um, but that's the intention to make a, a passage that would allow the Medici to walk from one building to the next without exposing themselves to the street life. Yes, yeah. I think yeah, he did many of the portraits. Um, but there's some more modern ones, I think, last time I checked, that have been added since then. But the intention is it's sort of a, a visual gallery um, echoing his book of lives. Thank you very much for your attention today. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.